Welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm your host, Max Kaiser, and today we're talking to the editors of the new book, Laughter After, Humor and the Holocaust, published this year by Wayne State University Press and edited by David Slukey, Lottie Smorgan, Associate Professor of Contemporary Jewish Life and Culture at the Australian Centre for Jewish Civilization at Monash University. Gabrielle N. Finder, Professor in the Department of German Languages and Literatures and former Director of the Jewish Studies Program at the University of Virginia, and Avinoam Pat, the Doris and Simon Conover Professor of Judaic Studies and Director of the Center for Judaic Studies and Contemporary Jewish Life at the University of Connecticut. Um, Thanks very much for joining us, guys. Thanks um, so much for having us. Thanks, Matt. Uh, so first question, um, over to, to David first. Tell us a bit about how this book project came about. Uh, thanks, Max. And again, thanks for having us. It's really exciting to get to talk to you about this. Um, the project was born, I would say, kind of formally at a conference that um, Gabby and Avi and I were at it, Brandeis University in 2016, which focused on uh, the legacy and significance of Lenny Bruce, uh, the very important uh, 1950s, 1960s Jewish stand-up comic. Uh, and we, you know, that was kind of where we first started having discussions. We, we'd actually been sort of doing this traveling roadshow for a little while where We'd been talking about Holocaust humor at conferences and it was a sort of ongoing conversation. You know, Gabby had edited, co-edited a book uh, a few years earlier um, on Jewish humor and a sort of new look at Jewish humor and Avi and I both had chapters in that. And so this was kind of this ongoing conversation and at a coffee break at this conference we sort of were sitting around thinking about how well I think our session had gone and we just sort of said why don't we turn this into a book somehow because I think we all realized we all wanted to write about holocaust humor and I think each of us realized that the topic was so kind of broad and diffuse that you know there wasn't one of us who could have written it and sort of done it justice to all the kind of linguistic and geographic considerations we would have had to make so we thought we'd work on it together we'd edit it and there were a bunch of scholars at that particular conference already that we thought you know the papers they gave were would be perfect as a start so um, for example Steve Whitfield was one of the organizers uh, Jenny Kaplan Jared Tanney um, and so we sort of thought we've got like a good base of people and we already we talked about it among ourselves and then we approached a few people at the conference and said, would you be interested in uh, contributing to this volume that, that we've just started talking about? And then we sort of thought about like what the scope of the book was and, you know, we sort of tapped into the people we knew working on the topic and we knew we wanted it to be geographically diverse and we knew we wanted it to cover the gamut of post-Holocaust humour. Uh, so you know, that includes the immediate aftermath uh, and then to the present day. And we were really very current. You know, we talked about things that were on TV, I think as late as the middle of 2019, 
and the book just came out. So, you know, we started approaching people who were writing about all these different aspects of humor and who would bring in different kinds of um, approaches to the topic. Um, and, you know, like the, the turnaround was pretty quick. Like we were a bit worried that the reception might be, um, you know, people might think it was controversial and we were worried whether a press would actually take on board a project like this, even though, you know, part of, I think part of our argument, we can talk about this a little later, is that the topic isn't as controversial as it appears at first. Um, but certainly like the Wayne State University Press were extremely enthusiastic and excited. There was never a question about whether or not this was a project that they would want to take on. They immediately were interested and, you know, even though that there was never really pushback but there were certainly questions along the way about and we had to examine this ourselves about, you know, what flies in this field. Um, you know, ultimately I think that the contributions we put together and it's really a world-class lineup of scholars in the book uh, really show that this is a robust conversation that's been happening in different quarters but has never really like come together in this particular way so we're really thrilled with the final product if i could add something this is gabi i just want to say that uh, i know that i'm speaking for david and avi when i say that the volume coheres very well uh, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. It really comes together very well. Um, and it shows that the, many of the authors were in conversation with each other during the process of uh, putting the book together. And one sees a coherent conversation among the different scholars in the book. Even though they're writing in a solitary way, as scholars usually do, there is a conversation in the book among them. Another point that I think is interesting is that um, when one thinks of Holocaust-inflected humor, one might also think about uh, humor that is anti-Semitic, that is humor that is used as a weapon against Jews. And it's very interesting in our volume that of the uh, 14 or 15 contributions, only one actually deals with anti-Semitic humor. So we're really dealing with how Jewish humorists and comedians use Holocaust-themed um, humor to um, make a larger message about um, society, culture, history, and so forth. And just one last thing I wanted to say um, uh, and that deals with controversy. Uh, I was a bit worried about controversy. I'm the uh, son and grandson of Holocaust survivors and uh, victims, and I was one. I was really. I'm very close to my father, who's uh, survived many camps. I was worried about how uh, he and my mother, who left Germany in 1939 with her parents, how they would react to this book and the fact that I'm working on this book. They read it. They love it. Nope problem whatsoever. So that made me feel uh, very good. And I agree with David that uh, it's not as controversial as it might appear on the surface. Gabby, and can I, we put that on the second volume jack book jacket that your parents approve of it so it's kosher? It's, yes, it's kosher all the way. We need that blurb. Yeah. <laughs> this, is, uh, this, is, this is Avi jumping into the conversation. So I just want to echo what my, what my co-editors have said and, um, and thank you obviously Max to, for inviting us to talk about, um, to talk about this project. And I'll just uh, add that one of the things that 
when we were meeting at that Lenny Bruce conference in 2016, um, the one of the things that we have been in conversation a lot about is how does the Holocaust humor that Jews were employing during the war as a response to Nazi persecution from the time of the 1930s through the 1940s into the aftermath of the war. Um, one of the components that that I look at in my in my book chapter, um, or that I looked at actually at the conference, the Lenny Bruce conference, was the humor that survivors used in the aftermath of the war. And we amongst ourselves had discussed how interesting it has been to see the rise of a different form of Holocaust humor over the past 20 years, not necessarily the humor that is created by survivors, but humor that has sort of infiltrated contemporary culture all over the world. I mean, in this volume, we have uh, representation from scholars uh, who represent uh, looking at the former Soviet Union, looking at Israel, looking at Germany, looking at America, looking at Australia, looking at Latin America. I mean, we cover the gamut. And it is a remarkable phenomenon to see the ways in which um, this humor has proliferated in the last 20 years, in particular after Life is Beautiful. And so for the three of us, I think we were really fascinated by this question of how does the contemporary type of Holocaust humor compare to the humor that was employed by Jews after the war? And how have the controversies that might have uh, emerged, let's say, with Mel Brooks and the producers in 1967, you know, what, what accounts for perhaps the lack of controversy that, that we see in certain cases today? Um, which type of humor is allowed? What is still taboo? Comedians are always trying to push boundaries. So does the Holocaust still work as a place to push boundaries or have those boundaries shifted? And um, I just really want to, you know, it's the one other thing I want to add about this volume. This Lenny Bruce conference was in 2016, right, guys, uh, when we sort of met at Brandeis. And um I have to thank David. It came together remarkably quickly uh, for an edited volume um, to uh, invite the amazing contributors that we have in the volume to get this incredible lineup, to get everything you know edited. Um, we're a great team, and I, I love working with these guys, and I'm really proud of, of what this book uh, turned out to be. Nice. That's awesome. Um, so we kind of already touched on this uh a little bit, uh, but maybe you could tell us a bit more, Gabrielle, um, about the, you mentioned that the book, uh, you know, you, there was worries about how controversial it would be. And I guess that's because you talk about in the introduction about how uh, a certain type of Holocaust etiquette um, has developed mm -hmm. over the years with associated taboos and a certain amount of high seriousness but maybe tell us about this and how humor fits into the broader Holocaust memorial landscape. Yes, thank you, Max. I'll begin the conversation. Um, when one thinks of Holocaust commemoration, when one thinks of what we call in the introduction Holocaust etiquette, uh, how one deals with taboos associated with the Holocaust, of course, um, one connects uh, a certain high level of seriousness of um, of uh, gravity, gravitas, uh, to Holocaust uh, commemoration. I have to admit that, and I, I teach the Holocaust, I'm the child of Holocaust survivors, I've done research, I'm a researcher, scholar, 
I don't like Holocaust commemoration, quite honestly. I hardly, I don't like them. I haven't liked them for a long time. And I think that's because they're not only serious, but very often they slide into what we might want to call sanctimonious um, commemoration. You know, uh, commemoration itself becomes, in the minds of those uh, who are commemorating, sometimes itself, uh, commemoration becomes itself a sacred act or a sacred cow. And not, you know, uh, different, uh, there are all various types of commemoration. Uh, uh, the three of us uh, have thought a lot about, and many of the other contributors have thought about Schindler's List, for example, with Spielberg's uh, famous film. And uh, David has written about this, and in my piece, uh, it, uh, in, in the volume, it uh, came up. Uh, Schindler's List itself is considered to be uh, a sacred cow, some, uh, a representation, a true representation, a faithful representation of the Holocaust, it's a great film, but it's a hyper-realistic uh, representation of the Holocaust. It purports to realistically represent the Holocaust. But of course, that's a fiction because nothing can realistically uh, represent uh, the Holocaust. Humor, on the other hand, doesn't purport to be a faithful representation of uh, the Holocaust. Humor is different. Humor is less imperious, I would say. Humor is a more subversive way of understanding and representing a horrible past, and in this case, uh, the Holocaust. So I think that uh, Holocaust-themed or inflected humor is an oblique way, or it offers or provides an oblique lens with which to process uh, not only the Holocaust, but for all of us who are, uh, come after the Holocaust, it's a lens in which to process the world created in the shadow of the Holocaust. And so it looks backwards, as commemoration often does. Uh, we commemorate the past. But what makes humor different, I think, uh, very interesting and um, exciting in a way, is that it also looks forward. Commemoration is usually backwards-looking. Humor is also forward-looking. It provides a space in which to imagine a more hopeful, more promising future. Uh, you know, when I think about, um, I grew up in a household of survivors, but there was always humor in our family because only human beings can laugh. And I think that uh, the fact that if one can um, approach the Holocaust in a way, the Holocaust is not funny. But there must be a way in which we can move on from the Holocaust to build a future in which the possibility of laughter is in which there exists the possibility of laughter. So um, I think that the the humor and humor um, Holocaust inflected humor um, humor with a Holocaust theme is fundamentally different from um, commemoration in two ways: the traditional commemoration. It's not sanctimonious. It doesn't pre doesn't pretend to represent reality in a faithful way, uh, but it also is not only backwards looking but also forward looking and gives us hope in the future. So that's why I think uh, that's what we I think that's one of the major themes in um, our edited book. So this is this is Avi. I'll just jump in um, with a with a reflection that adds and builds on to this sort of humor as a commentary about commemoration that Gabi was raising. One of the things that I find 
so interesting and that we look at in, in the volume and through the different uh, chapters is this question of who gets to tell the jokes. Um, and, you know, uh, we have uh, chapters that look at the humor of survivors and the descendants of survivors and what we might uh, refer to as a very unique type of humor among the descendants of survivors that is very much an insider humor, right? That seems to be the kind of jokes that survivors and the descendants are allowed to tell that perhaps others are not allowed to tell. Um, I'm thinking of Jordy Silverstein's chapter, for example, or what, what Gabby was just referencing, or David talk, has written about this as well, um, or Jared Tanney's chapter on Canada. There's a number that, that sort of refer to this um, humor among the descendants of survivors. But then there's also the question of what about those who are not related to survivors and who make these jokes? And, um, you know, how do we decide what the boundaries of what's taboo or not. In in Fern's chapter, Fern Perlstein and Bob Edwards, where they talk about The Last Laugh, um, this brilliant documentary film, The Last Laugh, that looks at Holocaust humor, there's a discussion in there about um, Joan Rivers and uh, a joke that she tells um, on on The Tonight Show, I believe it is, about Heidi Klum and that a German hasn't looked this hot since they're pushing Jews into the ovens. And there's a whole discussion in the in the film about, you know, Joan defending herself, saying that she uses humor as a way to remind people of the Holocaust, right? And I think this gives rise to a really interesting line of discussion because it's not humor that's being used as a weapon against the Nazis. It's not humor that's being used as a coping mechanism to deal with persecution. It's this argument that humor plays an important role as a form of commemoration and that at the same time that we see rising numbers of Jews, in particular in America and Israel, who identify the Holocaust as a central component of their identity of what it means to be Jewish, we also see a rise in this type of Holocaust humor, which then makes us wonder sort of what degree does this humor play a role in in giving voice to that identity and forming a way to sort of identify Jewishly through remembering the Holocaust or through humor about um, the Holocaust which is one of the things that fascinates me and that I look at in my chapter, this comparison of how does this work differently in America and Israel, right? What are, what is the, what are the jokes that Israelis tell about the Holocaust that American Jews would never want to hear? Um, so, you know, I find this to be endlessly fascinating. And this is David here. One of the things just to then piggyback even further about this is, you know, not all Holocaust humor is going to be funny or hit the mark. And, you know, some of it goes beyond the bounds of good taste and some of it just isn't funny and some of it's just crass. And I think like Gabby pointed out, not all Holocaust commemoration is in good taste or well executed or, um, you know, necessarily sensitive. I've been to plenty of commemorations and seen things that I just, you know, I kind of, like make me cringe a little bit also. So I think that's true with humor too. It's not always going to be funny. It's not always going to land for people, but like, and, and I'll just refer back to Fern and Bob's film, The Last Laugh, you know, one of the things that all the comedians they interview talk about, and this has become quite a common refrain on taboo humor among comics is you can joke about anything, but it's the joke that matters. Right, so what a lot of comics say is, you know, the the more difficult the topic, like the Holocaust or nine eleven, 
um, or sexual violence, the, the more taboo the topic, the higher the stakes, right? Like the joke has to be way better if it's going to be about the Holocaust. It's got to be, um, you know, much – it can't be kind of a throwaway joke in that instance because the stakes are higher. So, you know, my sense about this question of like what hum, – where humour fits in the kind of memorial landscape is – you know, it's like any form of art um, that it has a place in how we remember the Holocaust because, as Gabby says, we're we're human and one of the things we do as humans is laugh. And um, so why not when it comes to this as long as we're kind of doing it in a conscious, um, in a conscious way in which the subject of the humour isn't the victim, right? We're, we're not lampooning the victim. We're not... In other words, we're not punching down, right? We're sort of using humour as a way to think more deeply about it. I think that Joan Rivers' example is a kind of complicated one because it's really not clear who the subject of her joke is. Like, is she making fun of Heidi Klum? Is she making fun of Nazis? Or is she making fun of Jews? Um, And I think that's why the Joan Rivers example is complicated. And, you know, honestly, I kind of found her explanation like a little bit cringeworthy even because um and you know please everyone who's listening to this should go um see fern and bob's film the last laugh because i mean just seeing that sort of self-defense live is it's interesting and i'll just add that it's um you know that is completely different, right? The the type of joke that Joan Rivers tells there is completely different from something that David highlights in his chapter, which in, that Gabi was referring to, which is the humor that sort of makes light of contemporary commemoration practices, where this is almost using humor as a critique, not to, um, you know, uh, using humor as a weapon to attack Nazis and not humor that makes light of suffering, but humor that critiques contemporary commemoration practices. So when Sarah Silverman, you know, has her Wauschwitz episode of the Sarah Silverman show, or Amy Schumer has the Museum of Boyfriend Wardrobe Atrocities, um, it's not jokes about the Holocaust. It's jokes about Holocaust commemoration. It's joke jokes about Holocaust museums. It's jokes about enforced artificiality, which is a completely different category, right, than um, humor about about the Holocaust or about persecution, and in those instances, Avi, it's jokes about American Jews specifically. Like it's this very conscious self critique of American Jewish life that kind of like venerates the Holocaust and turns it into this otherworldly outside history thing, rather than something human. Definitely. Yeah. If I could, may I add, this is Gabi, just one short thing. This is uh, such an interesting conversation that we're having and so interesting to converse with uh, David and Avi about this again, because we haven't done this for a while, is that I'm thinking of Anne Frank. And one of our contributors is uh, Liat Shtir-Livni, who wrote about uh, memes, Israelis, uh, Twitter rather, Twitter um, uh, comments about Anne Frank. And, you know, one thinks of Anne Frank and uh, sacred and a taboo and uh, no one ever criticizes. And the first uh, we begin our book, the introduction, uh, we show the reader that Anne Frank, who was a young teenager, made a couple of dirty jokes in her diary. And then the jokes were somehow she um, alighted them or pasted some paper over them, glued some paper over them. 
And then it was recently discovered. And of course, that thing complicates our view of Anne Frank, but it makes her more human in my view than anything else. But what's interesting is Anne Frank is a, in many ways, a reference point for commemoration. But Many Israelis whom I know, they go to, uh, they don't go to commemorations of the Holocaust either because they don't get anything out of them. They find them rote, mechanistic. They don't do anything for them. And yet so many young Israelis are writing uh, Twitter uh, comments about Anne Frank because uh, they feel an association with her. You know, they identify with her in a way. You, um, uh, it's, she's uh, an important figure. But uh, when they're feeling bad or when things are bad for them, they, not to minimize Anne Frank's suffering, but they see a point of connection between themselves and Anne Frank that they wouldn't see if they had just gone to a conventional commemorational uh, event or ceremony. So I think uh, there are so many different aspects of this issue of commemoration uh, that we deal with in the book. And in fact, there's been like a spike in Anne Frank tweets since all the coronavirus lockdown started mm. and like all these jokes about like, um, you know, people are com- people say like, you know, Anne Frank was really locked down, but, you know, we've got Netflix and, it, you know, sort of comparing their situations and then the backlash to that um, and the whole like thing about, you know, the Anne Frank jokes has kind of resurfaced in the last few months. It's been kind of interesting to watch. Especially in light of Leah's chapter, we're in a different kind of hiding, right? We're we're uh, sort of having a different experience, but it does reinforce sort of, and and I think it is a cultural reference point that mm-hmm. we have both in Israel and in America that um, both kind of it might relativize, right? But it, it might also be a reference point for sort of you think about our contemporary situation is difficult if we compare it to a previous historical situation that everyone will get that reference, which I think is fascinating. It also shows us sort of how common these references are in society that you don't need a special code to understand what an Anne Frank joke is, right? You will get it right away, which I don't know if this means it's a success or a failure of Holocaust education, but um, it is certainly fascinating to see, especially in the American context, there are certain motifs and themes that repeat over and over as punchlines for jokes about the Holocaust, where uh, I argue, you know, in certain other cultures, especially in Israel, their humor requires a little bit deeper knowledge of uh, of history than um, we expect of our American audiences. Great. So, I just want to, um, we sort of touched on it, but bring the discussion um, towards sort of the contemporary political moment. And um, we're recording this in the midst of an eruption of a a mass movement against racist police violence in in the States, um, which has been met with more police violence and uh, President Trump continuing to evoke far-right racist rhetoric. Um, So how this is something that you touch on in the introduction about uh, sort of the the rise of uh, the far-right and how that might change how we think about humour and memory. Uh, Yeah, how, how, how does it relate to current political events? Um, Avi? Sure. I'll, I'll start. I'll take the lead on this one. And then um, we'll look forward to hearing what my co-editors think about, you know, we are living in the midst of this um, extraordinary moment 
uh, both in terms of sort of 2020 has, um, has been a remarkable year, let's put it that way, um, both in terms of thinking about the impact of the pandemic and then as we record this, um, looking at the, the protest movement that has emerged after the killing of, of George Floyd in, in Minneapolis and even more so sort of brought light to um, the importance of the Black Lives Matter movement and um, police brutality against uh black and brown people, all people of color, and, and sort of, it, it is a remarkable moment. And um, as you mentioned in the in the introduction, we do reference um, sort of thinking about the rise of anti-Semitism um, around the world and how this might impact the uses of Holocaust humor in the very contemporary moment. Now, it certainly has not dissipated um, the use of Holocaust humor. If anything, we see increasing references uh, to Holocaust humor. And it's interesting. I mean, one of the things that we look at at the book is this question of whether the Holocaust did anything at all to change Jewish humor, or um, were the sort of conventions of Jewish humor, in particular the conventions of Jewish humor that use humor as a response to anti-Semitism, um, is that sort of the the same function of humor before, during, and after the war? And certainly this type of humor that we can use as a response to anti-Semitism, call it the weapon of the weak, a psychological defense mechanism, as David was alluding to before, the idea of punching up, um, we can continue to see this uh, taking place even in the current moment as we think about responding to anti-Semitism. I just yesterday saw an article that um was alleging or was highlighting the fact that among certain uh, right-wing or alt-right movements, they are alleging that George Soros is responsible for organizing the street protests that are taking place in the United States. And I, of course, had to laugh because that's my default reaction. Um, and, you know, we can think about like this idea of, of using humor as a response to anti-Semitism because these are so ridiculous, but these tropes go so far back in terms of the idea of there being a worldwide conspiracy that has been organized by the Jews. Um, you know, the march that took place in Charlottesville, not far from where Gabi works, um, you know, that said Jews will not replace us. Again, the same idea of that there's a conspiracy that Jews are trying to use people of color to replace the white nation or the, or the shooting in, in the synagogue in Pittsburgh. Again, that Hayas was trying to import, um, you know, uh, refugees, uh, migrants to America to replace the white race. Right. It's on the one hand, it's so irrational that the only way to respond to it is through humor. I, I, I'm reminded of a joke that I don't think I reference in the in the book, but I may have mentioned in another article. Steve Lipman has it in his collection, Laughter in Hell, in which you know a, a Jewish man is seen sitting in a in a cafe in Berlin. Um, reading a copy of Der Sturmer in 1935, and his secretary comes up to him and and says, "How can you be reading Der Sturmer, this horrible libel uh, sheet? You know, have you become some kind of a self-hating Jew or, God forbid, a, a Nazi?" And he says, "On the contrary, Frau Epstein, when I read the Jewish papers, I see that uh, you know the world is falling apart and they're attacking us and destroying us and sending us all over the world. But when I read Der Sturmer," I see that we control the banks and that we control the media and we control the political parties. And it makes me feel a whole lot better. Right. And I am reminded of that joke when I think of the present moment, because 
it is sort of this question of you could cry as you look at the present moment, or you could use humor to process it as a coping mechanism and also as a way to push back against it and push back against the absurd and ridiculous nature of some of this these contemporary forms of anti-Semitism. Uh, it's David here. I'm going to jump in. And also just, um, you know, I just want to sort of preface this also by saying that, you know, Max, you and I are um, in Melbourne. Uh, I'm sitting on Bunwarung country and you're, I, I guess, in Woiwurrung country right now. And um, it's worth acknowledging that the the sort of scenes we're seeing out of the US of uh, police violence and brutality brutality also apply here in Australia and, you know, Indigenous deaths in custody is a major ongoing issue that is unresolved and unacknowledged. And so, um, you know, we're seeing this kind of flare up, you know, it's helped, I think, spark the discussion here a little more in the last few days. Um, but it's certainly like what we're seeing happen in the US is a global problem. Um, and I, I want to acknowledge that, you know, we live on land that was never ceded. Um, and so the, the, that sort of injustice continues today. Um, but to the point about uh, the rise of anti-Semitism, and again, anti, the rise of anti-Semitism isn't just a US phenomenon. Um, you know, last year, Nazis marched on St Kilda Beach, which is kind of like an area basically with a high concentration of Jews. Um, I agree with Avi that some of this stuff is so ridiculous that you just have to laugh. And I say it often to my students, if you don't laugh, you'll just cry all the time. And so laughter, I think it sort of serves two things in this regard. It's a way to just cope when you don't know what else to do about the rising tide of anti-Semitism. And I think it's undoubtable that there is a rising tide. Um, but also it does serve as a kind of means of aggression against anti-Semites. So I'm currently writing a paper on um, comedy and humour as a response to Holocaust deniers. And one of the things that comedians do, I argue, do very effectively is in a way that I think historians can't do as effectively is they can expose the absurdity of Holocaust denial, the ridiculousness of what motivates Holocaust deniers. They can do it in a joke. Sarah Silverman has this joke in um, uh, her, nine, uh, her 2004 special Jesus is Magic um, where she talks about her grandmother and she says, my grandmother's a survivor of the Holocaust. Oh, I'm sorry, alleged Holocaust. And it's like a very um, – and, you know, she goes on to say, like, she has a kind of, um, she has the number on her arm, but it's, like, bedazzled. Um, and, you know, I think in that very small minor joke, she unpacks a lot of the ridiculousness and absurdity of survivors. You know, she makes us see that they're ridiculous. Um, there's numerous segments in Jon Stewart that do this. Um uh, the, that is the Daily Show. Nathan Fielder, the Canadian comic, has a segment where, and Avi writes about this in his chapter in the book, where he um, responds to a Canadian out, out, um, outdoor apparel company who supports Holocaust denial by setting up his own outdoor apparel company that promotes Holocaust awareness and education. Um, and so, you know, I think there is something about humour as a very kind of efficient 
and very powerful way to expose the absurdity of deniers and their motives. And similarly, anti-Semites and conspiracy theories and, um, you know, in a sort of troubling world, I think humour is really important in sort of helping us process and make sense of these complexities. And this is Gabi. If I could just interject a, a brief uh, cautionary note. I agree with Avi and I agree with David, but I'm also worried by the fact or concerned by the fact. It seems to me that um, anti-Semites, white nationalists and others are taking a page from the Jewish humor playbook. And they are especially in the current moment, not only in the current moment, they're exploiting this uh, current moment of um, anxiety, um, outrage, uh, uh, loss of faith in our institutions. Uh, they use uh, anti-Semites and others like them of their ilk are using uh, humor to undermine faith in democratic institutions, but they are satirizing uh, those institutions using Nazi-era tropes. And that concerns me. Um, I think, you know, um, one way to um, challenge uh, conspiracy theories and uh, this effort is, again, through humor. But humor even though we believe, all three of us believe in humor, we just co-edited an excellent book on the topic. Humor also has its limits, uh, I think. And um, this is a, we're in a moment of crisis. And in a moment of crisis, uh, even the best humor, I think, has its limits. I mean, it's limited potential potency power uh, to offset, uh, to counter um the um, uh, pernicious effort by others to uh, undermine our institutions, uh, to support uh, the persecution of um, uh, minorities and other um, disadvantaged groups. So it's a double-edged sword, and it's, um, it's a tenuous moment, I would say. I believe in humor. I like humor. It has uh, tremendous potential, but it's limited. Especially in a moment like this of um, um, acute crisis, and I'll, I would just add um, to to echo the excellent points that that David and Gabi have made that um, it, there is this delicate balance that has to take place about sort of, and this is what I, I would argue makes it such a fascinating topic of study. Right? It's you can't quite pin it down. You can't quite define and identify the boundaries of what's appropriate. There's sort of a way that it has to be done on a case-by-case basis almost. And and then it's very subjective on who decides, um, you know, what's effective and what's not effective. It's completely subjective. If Fern has this amazing moment in the film where, um, you know, that Sarah Silverman bit from Jesus's magic um, is being viewed by renee firestone the holocaust survivor that she follows in the film and it's it's wonderful and so poignant because what the three of us may laugh at in sarah silverman's humor the holocaust survivor renee firestone turns around and says i don't think that's funny right so there is this sort of very subjective nature to it although i'd I'd agree with david that you know with some with holocaust deniers and, and deborah lipstadt you know sort of 
wrestled with this dilemma. Do you engage with them directly? Do you even treat David Irving as somebody who's serious that you would engage with him on the historical playing field? And she ultimately decided because she was sued that she had to play against him on the field of history, even though that was so ridiculous and he's not somebody who should be taken seriously, but she had to sort of defeat him on that playing field. And what Sarah Silverman is able to do in that sort of alleged Holocaust line, which highlights just how ridiculous conspiracy theories and denial actually is, is to sort of demolish it with one word, right? Um, And not really engage it on the same playing field and say that I refuse to sort of um, even give it uh, the time of day to treat it, to treat it seriously, which I think is such a fascinating tactic. To Gabi's point, though, what's interesting is, and we talk about sort of the limits of satire as a weapon against um, fascism as a weapon against authoritarianism. I mean, I'm thinking about um, uh, Charlie Chaplin and the great dictator who said that, and and I think Steve Whitfield writes about this in his chapter that, you know, Chaplin would not have made that film if he had known what he had known. You know, if he, if it had been two or three years later, he never would have made the film because it made light of, of Hitler or Adnoid Hinkle in the, in the film um, but in 1940, he didn't know what was going to happen, right? And we can think about the echoes of that in the present day. I think Alec Baldwin is a little bit more reluctant to um, sort of do his satires of of Trump than he may have been in 2016, because it softened Trump in a lot of ways. It made him more palatable. Mm-hmm. And so that's the sort of double-edged sword of satire is not always effective. It's not always the be- best weapon when something really is dangerous. And also, I mean, in that, it's David here, in that Alec Baldwin example, um, it the point is not only that satire is not effective, but it might have the opposite effect. It might humanize the target in, a way, in an unintended way, right? It kind of softens them because they look ridiculous. But in certain cases, you know, I think of this interview that uh, John Safran, who's a um, Melbourne-based um, filmmaker, writer, he did in his 2009 series, uh, Race Relations, an interview with David Irving. He flew to London and did an interview in a radio studio. And it's like a six and a half minute segment. And by the end, there is no doubt that Irving is a racist, misogynist, homophobic buffoon. I mean, no one takes him seriously after that. And I contrast that to this um, interview he did with an Australian TV news program in 1993 by satellite called The Current Affair, where he was put in conversation with a local survivor. And it kind of, you can see that hesitation about engaging with him in that way, right? Because it elevates him to a historian. And I put that in big fat quotation marks. Um, and it makes it a debate, like a legitimizer debate. But if you, if a comedian can just like re- peel back those layers and reveal the the anti semite underneath, I think that's a way more effective way to deal with it. I'll also just say um, to Gabby's point that you know humor's not necessarily in the service of good, right? Like we don't we don't own humor. <laughs> And by we, I mean the good guys, (laughs) you know, like humor is not simply a progressive thing. Humor exists for everyone and gets deployed in all kinds of ways. And so we shouldn't fall into that trap of thinking humor is only something in the service of good. Like the Nazis 
used humor as a means to exclude and marginalize and humiliate their victims. And this is the playbook that even more so that neo-Nazis are playing out of than from the Jewish playbook. They're using humor in the ways that their predecessors used as a means to humiliate. Um, And so I think, you know, we've got to be a little careful about thinking that humor is just a progressive thing and just a weapon of the weak because it's absolutely not humor as Freud and many other philosophers and psychologists have shown us is aggressive, you know, can be aggressive. And that doesn't mean it's just aggressive for um, the marginalized, Um, even if it can also have that effect. We need to be cautious about that. That's something that, you know, Ilan Stavins shows in his chapter in in the book when he talks about anti-Semitic cartoons in Latin America that and it's something we grappled with actually when we talked about the book. We spoke to a colleague about maybe submitting a chapter that delved into a lot of these memes and online anti-Semitism. And we kind of landed, and it was right after the Charlottesville riot. And we decided that we didn't want that in the book, that we didn't want that deep dive into what at that stage we were talking about as like the darkest corners of the internet. Um, And the colleague that we were talking to, I think also just at that moment felt like that was not what he wanted to do. Um, And, you know, that's also kind of hard to deal with because if you're writing about the alt-right, the far right, the neo-Nazis, you know, as a, I I mean, I tip my hat to the researchers who do that, but, you know, that's really difficult work as well. That, that like is not humor as a, you know, that falls outside the pleasure principle idea, like humor is giving you pleasure. That is humor as a weapon, but not the, not the kind that we like to talk about. Yeah, I think, I think David's point is, is excellent. You know, we, we've focused on Jewish humor as sort of the self-deprecating internalized humor that deflects the aggression of the outside world. But most humor in, in most cultures is sort of uh, this punching down type of humor that um, is a humor of the powerful directed against the weak. And yeah, this chapter, um, the contributor, you know, looking at the sort of awful stuff that he discovered online in these alt-right sort of white nationalist circles that invoke the Holocaust, it's just too disturbing and said, I can't, I can't go there. So. And that, that, that's kind of an old theory of humor, that superiority theory. Like that goes back to the ancient Greeks and John Locke wrote about it. Like it's an old idea that humor is something you use to kind of vanquish your enemies. Um, and, you know, it's something that someone ought to write about, but we just didn't think it was like squarely in the scope of this volume. And did you want to um, uh, give us an overview more of um, the contributors to the volume um, and the structure of the volume, or are you happy to to the have we covered have we covered everyone? I mean, I think maybe we can just sort of talk about how we divided it up. So we divided into two broad sections. The first was the section that looked at the humor in the aftermath of the Holocaust. And when we say aftermath, that's kind of loosely put because that also includes wartime humor. Um, And also, in fact, sort of some comparative work in pre-war humor. So we have, for example, Anna Sternschiss, 
Um, so I should pref- always preface that by saying Grammy-nominated Anna Sternschiss, uh, whose chapter on um, Soviet Yiddish humor and folklore during World War II uh, tells us something about um, the ways in which that Soviet and Polish Jews in the Soviet Union uh, like what they knew and understood about the war and the sort of relations between uh, the Soviet state and humor. We have uh, Steve Whitfield who looks at um, films during the war, so Chaplin's Great Dictator, for example, uh, and uh, Jack Benny's To Be On, uh, Ernst Lubitsch's To Be or Not To Be with Jack Benny and also the producers and sort of looks at the changing nature of humor related to Nazis and the Holocaust. Um, and then we've got things that sort of look at post-war Yiddish humor as well. So Mark Kaplan writes about post-war Poland and uh, specific instances of Yiddish humor there. David Schneer writes about this remarkable um, figure, Linyal Dadia, um, Dutch Yiddish cabaret singer who re- who's a communist who resettles in East Germany after the war, but the n- nature of her performance changes because she's an Auschwitz survivor. And, you know, he, he basically argues that what was humorous in her performance before isn't possible in the aftermath. And then Jan Schwartz uh, writes about um, Itzhak Besheva Singer um, and his novel Enemies, a love story, and looks at the issues of translation and how humor, whether or not the humor about the survivors in that novel translates into English and how the meaning changes for the different audiences. So that's the first section, and maybe I'll hand over to Avi or Gabi to talk about the second section, Breaking Taboos. Sure. So, um, and, uh, you know, I think I think one of the things that we wanted to point out in, in looking at this organization of the volume was this question of change over time and um, sort of who gets to make the jokes and, and sort of the transition from let's say, a European Ashkenazi uh, Jewish humor that uh, carried from the period before, during, and after into the immediate aftermath of the war. And, you know, Jan Schwartz's chapter is a perfect example of that question of how do you translate that from Yiddish into English, um, this brilliant analysis of enemies, a love story, and sort of the self-translation that Singer does, sort of asking these questions of like, what are the things that you can write for a Yiddish speaking audience, a Yiddish reading audience that you can't write for an American English reading audience, which is just a fascinating question about sort of what are the jokes that you can tell and how how do you have to be aware of your audience? The second part of the book, The Breaking Taboos, looks very much at, um, you know, Jenny Kaplan looks at uh, this, this sort of changing images of, of uh, American Jewish masculinity through an, a comparison of Lenny Bruce and Woody Allen, two very different types of Jewish male comedians, and the ways in which they invoke um, the Holocaust in their humor. Uh, Jared Tanney has this um, a chapter on, on Canadian Jewish writers, um, which is, you know, he's, he's done some brilliant work that that looks at sort of the way that the Holocaust representations of Jewishness and in Seinfeld. I love the chapter that he did for you, Gabi, um, on this. And, and here also sort of looks at... Um, Canadian uh, Jewish writers. We've mentioned Ilan's chapter and and Liat, who's really the expert on kind of um, the Israeli cultural scene and invocations of the Holocaust, representations of the Holocaust and Israeli popular culture. So um, it, this chapter that she wrote on, on Anne Frank tweets. Um, 
And then, Gabi, maybe you want to say something about your sure, film? Yeah. Yes, I wrote about uh, Oliver Polak, who is one of Germany's most popular stand-up comedians and TV talk show hosts. Uh, he's a German Jew, uh, born in West Germany in 1976, and he's the son of a Holocaust survivor. And uh, the focus of his comic act is, generally speaking, the awkward and pretentious, self-righteous, self-serving manner in which anything to do with Jews is dealt with uh, in Germany after uh, the Holocaust. Um, but what he really wants, I argue, in my essay, in the volume, is to normalize relations between non-Jewish Germans and Jewish Germans, because he wants to belong. He wants to be part of German society. He wants Jewish life in Germany to be normal after the Holocaust. But he does it in a very funny way. Uh, and I spend a lot of time in my essay dealing with his act called Lasst uns alle Juden sein, Let's All Be Jews. Uh, and the refrain, and what he does in this, uh, um, it's a video, it's also an act on stage. Uh, he um, he imagines a world in which non-Jews become or turn into Jews. And in his music video, he recreates the Ghostbusters from the movie franchise by the same name. And in the video, he zaps ordinary pedestrians in an outdoor commercial district and turns them into Jews. But not only Jews, but Hasidic Jews. <laughs> um, and the refrain of the song goes uh, in English translation. I'll say, say it in translation. Come, let's all be Jews and you and you and you, you belong too. And it's a very funny uh, video. And I try to show in my essay how um, Polak, in his comic act, uh, this uh, German Jewish uh, son of a Holocaust survivor with the Holocaust either in the foreground or the background, he not only criticizes but also reimagines contemporary German society. He tries to reconfigure relations between Jews and non-Jews. Um, from his own perspective, he imagines a utopia in which everyone, Germans included, become Jews. Of course, what's so funny is from the perspective of a Jewish person, that might be utopian. But from the perspective of a certain type of German, it must seem like a dystopian nightmare if all Germans turn into Jews. Because not only are the Jews returning to Germany, and not only now do they step into the limelight again, even if it took more than a century after the Holocaust, but now Germans are turning in uh, to Jews. So. Uh, the Nazis uh, imagined the final victory of the German people or German uh, over Judaism, but Pollock imagines a post-Holocaust fantasy in which everyone's Jewish, uh, a fantasy of Judaism's final victory over Germandom, and that's a pretty funny thought. So that's uh, the focus of my chapter in the book. Avi, do you want to continue? Um, what do you want sure. me to continue? Sure, I'll just... Um, so just to to final uh, to conclude with the last four chapters of the volume, Jordy Silverstein has a chapter on on Holocaust jokes told among um, uh, the third generation um, descendants, and especially in in Australia. And it's sort of a fascinating analysis again of these insider jokes. Um, I don't. Could I just inter if I could just yeah. interject for one moment? I found that chapter extremely interesting because I'm second generation. And those jokes told by the third generation were so uh, subversive and, uh, I must say, even strange to me, you know? I couldn't imagine anyone from my... And I had a lot of friends 
in my position, you know, a second generation children of Holocaust survivors, such jokes never would have entered our minds completely. So it was so interesting to see how, and I'm the father of children and the so-called, I mean, they're the third generation, but how differently uh, one generation from one generation to the other, how you, we also had Holocaust inflected jokes in a way, but it's so different. So there's this generational change, um, even among the uh, offspring of survivors itself was so fascinating to see in the chapter by uh, Jordana Silverstein. Yeah, definitely. And I'll, I'll just note that my chapter um, is, is, as I've mentioned, a comparison of, of Israeli and American sketch comedy uh, that invokes the Holocaust. Um, and, you know, I go through different Israeli shows like Eretz Nederet and Hamishia Kamerit and this wonderful newer show um, that I've sort of become obsessed with, uh, which in Hebrew is called a Yehudim Ba'im, um, the Jews are coming. Um, and it's a brilliant sort of uh, satirical analysis of Jewish history. And I really mine it for sort of the uh, treatments of hol- the Holocaust, which I would argue requires a more sophisticated knowledge of the history to get the jokes um, than we typically see among American audiences. And, and David also writes about um, sort of uh, American sitcoms and uh, that invoke the Holocaust, um, things like Curb Your Enthusiasm and Seinfeld. And I, I touch upon some of these examples uh, in my in my chapter as well. So oh, maybe, brilliant. What? maybe I'll jump in really quickly, just the last yeah, two yeah. chapters. So just to elaborate real quick, like my chapter looks at the rise of Holocaust humor in sitcoms in America since the 90s particularly, and I sort of argue that by the by today it's almost kind of compulsory to prove your edginess in a sitcom to make Holocaust jokes. It's really ubiquitous. And a lot, a lot of people know the uh, Larry David Kerber Enthusiasm episode um, with, with the survivor from 2004, but actually that's just like one milestone along the way where pretty much any sitcom you think of have Nazi or Holocaust jokes. And I even was watching the nanny recently. And even in, I think it was 92 or 93, you know, there's like jokes about Hitler in the nanny, which is this like wholesome family (laughs) sitcom. Um, and then the final chapter is from Fern Perlstein, Bob Edwards, um, in which they sort of talk about making the last laugh and some of the ethical, moral issues that the film raises and sort of how that their thinking developed over the course of making the film. Brilliant. So, yeah, that's a great overview. Um, and it was a really interesting um, discussion of, yeah, what is um, a really excellent volume. So uh, congratulations to uh, you, the editors, and also all the, the contributors. Uh, before we let you go, maybe just briefly, I want to ask if uh, you guys have more plans for collaboration together on future projects, or or if not, or if as well, uh, you what sort of uh, individual projects are you working on? Well, I could say that after this experience, never again, you know, (laughs) I think you, I think you mean hashtag never again, (laughs) but but no, uh, it's, uh, it's been a, a, you know, wonderful experience to work, to work with these two on editing the volume. And, and I have to say that, um, 
what's been fascinating is so we kind of brought this group together of people who are really interested in in the topic of humor and the Holocaust in the in the book. And we've already seen a number of conferences that have spun off of this. There is this sort of budding and emerging field that is uh, really beginning to take the subject of humor seriously. Um, humor studies uh, as a serious academic discipline that um, I think all of us have have dabbled with in, in different ways. David's probably the one who's been most deeply um, embedded in it. Um, you know, and, and I bounce back and forth. I personally, I teach a Jewish humor class, which as you might imagine, is a very popular class at the University of Connecticut. A lot of students want to take that class. And um, it it keeps bringing me back to this question about, that's a fascinating question about the centrality of humor in contemporary Jewish identity and the centrality of the Holocaust in contemporary Jewish identity. And what is the nexus between those two things? And one of those things might be that as we see an increasingly secular form of Jewish identity that um, is sort of leaving the religious establishments behind, you do see people looking for ways to identify in ways that we would identify as as secular. And, and I think both humor and remembering the Holocaust kind of is an interesting way to think about, could these be new touchstones for a 21st century type of contemporary um, Jewish identity? So I continue to, to dabble and think about those things. And at the same time, I'm working on projects that are sort of your more run-of-the-mill history of the Holocaust and his history of the aftermath of the Holocaust. But I will say that maybe it's a coping mechanism. You know, you sort of deal with this really dark stuff all the time. Um, I just finished a book on the aftermath of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, and you're working with really dark, difficult material. And I like jumping back to the humor material as sort of an outlet. So maybe it, it's a way of processing um, through our academic study at the same time. Well, I should say that this was my second foray into uh, Jewish humor. I edited a book or co-edited an earlier book in 2016, and my own essay there dealt with Ephraim Kishon, a famous Israeli humorist uh, who became very popular in Germany. And I tried to explain, or I tried to uh, understand why he became so popular, how a Holocaust survivor from Hungary who then uh, lived in Israel, could become so popular in Germany. And then it was wonderful to work with uh, David and Avi on our book. And uh, again, I worked, I work on Germany in part, large part, and it was interesting to uh, do that. With the three of us are a great team. We've had gigs together. And, you know, as we're taught, we have talked about we we said to each other, maybe we should all work on, the three of us should work on something together again. We don't have any concrete plans, but as we're talking, I can think of things. You know, we're all interested in Holocaust survivors, testimony. I could see us moving perhaps a bit away from humor per se and maybe um, more into the experience of being Holocaust survivors, second generation, third generation, what that means. Uh, in today's world. So I, I can, I mean, it's important to me because I have children. We all have children. Um, David himself is third generation. I'm second. Avi's very interested in these issues. So I can see us working together on that. But like, uh, for me, this is more of a, it's a sideline and it's a way to inhale and exhale because I work on um, otherwise very serious topics. And um, so I, um, with our good friend uh, and colleague, Laurie Yorkosh, I co-edited a book uh, with Wayne State University Press on Jewish honor courts in 2015. And right now I'm working on my, oh, 
<laughs> that's thank you. <laughs> nice to know. Nice to know that you have it. And um, so I'm finishing uh, my own monograph on the Polish Jewish Honor Court. And just for quickly for uh, listeners who don't know what that what they were or what honor courts were, those were um, post-war. Um, communal uh, tribunals um, established by Jewish communities uh, in the diaspora, both in DP camps and in countries like Poland, the Netherlands, in um, uh, uh, Allied-occupied Germany, in which uh, Jews uh, accused of uh, cooperating or thought to have cooperated with the Germans, uh, with the Nazis, of having dirty hands, were investigated, and if the facts proved uh, warranted or plausible, they were tried in communal courts of their Jewish peers. And I find that extremely interesting, it has nothing to do with humor, it's not humorous at all, but uh, it's a very, it's in, in a way, humor looks to the future, I believe very much so, that's what distinguishes so much from, let's, from many other things, it's hopeful, it gives them, um, there's, as we were talking about, um, what this, your, your last question, Max, about the present moment, and I was thinking to myself as David and Avi were talking, and the, there's humor that is aggressive, that attacks people, and there's something hopeful about Jewish humor dealing with the Holocaust. It's forward-looking. It says, we, uh, we process the past in order to build a future. And I think that the Jewish honor courts were... They operated on a similar uh, sort of principle that we deal with uh, the past. We were the victims, but there were some among us uh, whose behavior was questionable, and we have to uh, deal with them in a forthright way so that we can move forward into the future. So there is a connection uh, between them. Uh, so that's what I'm working on now. I also have other little projects, but it would be wonderful if Avi, uh, David, and I could find another project uh, to work on because we're a great team together. Um, for my part, I am still so I, I'm like Avi and Gabby. I've got the kind of more earnest stuff that I work on. So um, I've had this ongoing project about survivors in the U.S. and the ways in which they collectively negotiate this identity of survivors through establishing particular organizations and. You know, what one thing I argue there is that sort of helps to inform what more general understandings of the Holocaust are. And so that's a book project that's ongoing. Um, and I'm still sort of dabbling in humor. So I have an article I'm writing, as I said earlier, on Holocaust deniers and comedy, but I also have a bigger book that I'm like right at the outset of working on that I'm not going to talk about yet because I'm not ready <laughs> to talk publicly about it. Um, and then, you know, now that I've, I've just moved back to Melbourne fairly recently and so I'm sort of starting to embark on bigger projects um, and partnerships in Melbourne that sort of look at uh, the cultural histories of Melbourne Jews and try and – and, you know, one thing I want to show there is that um, the history of Jewish Melbourne is worth taking seriously globally, right, that Melbourne is – uh, a city, a Jewish city that ought to be talked about in the company of major Jewish centers of the 20th century. And so I'm looking at sort of cultural artifacts um, and histories that have come out of Melbourne, the Melbourne Jewish world. So those are the kind of different directions that I'm taking, how I juggle them all. Um, let's talk again soon and <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I also hope that um, Avi and Gabby and I get to to work together again. And yeah, we've had, you know, we've been sort of talking about different ideas for, for some time. And I recommend to everyone out there listening, like find 
people you like to work with and work with them because it's a pleasure to, you know, like editing books is hard work and time consuming, but when you have great, um, a great team and great contributors, it's a huge pleasure. You know, it's very nice because uh, David Avi and I were friends before we started working together. And since we started working together on this project, we're much closer friends. So, you know, academics is such a solitary undertaking in many ways. Um, this human, the fact that we work together humanizes uh, what we do as academics. And humor is a humanizing uh, human activity. So it all came together. We became close friends. We worked on something important that is uh, important, uh, critical to the human condition. Absolutely. So, yeah, that's a great note to end on. Um, so thank you very much for talking to me about um, your volume today. So just to wrap up, um, you've been listening to New Books in Jewish Studies and uh, with your host, Max Kaiser. And today we talked to the editors of the new book, Laughter After, Humor and the Holocaust, published this year by Wayne State University Press, uh, edited by David Slukey, Gabrielle N. Finder, and Avinoam Pat. Um, so thanks very much for listening. Well, thank you very much for having us. Thanks, Max. Yes, thanks thank for you. having us, Max.